We give thanks because Jesus is our life. And we'll be talking about that today as we turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we will be considering verse 1 up to verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 up to verse 10, and I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Please follow along with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this is a very familiar passage, and it's easy to lose sight of the wonder of this text. So to help us, I suppose, catch the beauty, catch the wonder, I'd like us to view it through the lens of an ancient Japanese art form, as described by a writer named Kurt Thompson in his book, The Soul of Desire. It's an art form called Kintsugi. And Kintsugi, according to Kurt Thompson, is the tradition of mending broken vessels by putting the pieces back together with an adhesive that is then overlaid with a precious metal such as gold, silver, or platinum. The word Kintsugi is composed of literally kin, meaning gold, and tsugi, to join together. It originated between the 14th and 15th centuries when, as the story goes, a Japanese shogun shattered his favorite tea bowl. He sent it to China for repair, only to have it return in an, accept in an unacceptable fashion. The shogun was deeply distressed and planned to discard the bowl. When his craftsmen heard this, they repaired the bowl, 
But instead of hiding the fracture lines, they highlighted them, giving the bowl a beauty that outshone its appearance before it was broken. And friends, I would submit that Kintsugi is a picture of what God is doing in us, both as individual believers and as a corporate body, as a church. And Paul begins this passage by reminding us of how broken we were outside of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 up to verse 3 describes the real plight of everyone outside of Jesus Christ. Some of you might find it offensive, but I have to say, I grew up in church. I told you, I I started attending church before I was even born. And I came to faith at the age of seven. And yet, as I look at this passage, I recognize that it describes me before I came to faith. And in fact, it describes each and every individual outside of Jesus Christ. No matter how upright and moral you may be, if you have not trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord, you are dead in trespasses and sins. Outside of Jesus Christ, we are rebels, alienated from God. And religion might actually be your way of resisting the rule of God. And Paul points out the sad reality that your rebellion, our rebellion, did not result in freedom. Instead, our pursuit of autonomy, of Freedom from God's rule put us under the influence of a world in revolt against God. That is what Paul is saying in verse 1 and verse 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead because we are separated from God who is life. We are under the influence of the world because we are following the course of this world. And on top of being captured by this world and its resistance to God, we also became slaves of Satan by our disobedience to God. Paul goes on, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And it's not as if we were unwilling victims trapped in something that we wanted to break free of. Paul goes on. We lived in among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We were happy as pigs in the mud of our depravity. You might say, in light of this description, that we were zombies. We are, we were the living dead, always feeding our passions and desires, but cursed with an insatiable hunger. 
worse. We were children of wrath living under the righteous judgment of God. Now, some people might find the notion of God's wrath unsettling because they think it is inconsistent with a God of love and grace. But the biblical account affirms that God is wrathful precisely because God is loving. Miroslav Wolf, a theologian from Yale, would put it this way. I don't necessarily agree with everything Wolf writes, but I agree with him on this one. He says, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to such carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath? But instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Was not God fiercely angry with them? God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because God is love. And those of you who love people who have done wrong and who have actively been destroying themselves know this combination of love and anger. You get angry with them because you love them. You don't want them to destroy themselves. Amazingly, God expressed His love for children of wrath by entering into our brokenness in order to beautify us. That's what verse 4 is all about. Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Imagine that. He who is our judge chose to love us. And instead of pouring out the wrath that we deserve, bore our wrath in himself. And it is not because he saw anything in us. Notice what Paul says. But God, because he is rich in mercy, it is a free, spontaneous act flowing from the compassionate heart of this holy and righteous God. And it is a costly grace because in order to make us alive with Him, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, had to become a man. 
live 33 years on this fallen, sinful world as a fully human being, yet without sin, for the express purpose of laying down his life on a Roman cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. God showed the wondrous glory of his grace by bringing us into union with Christ. That's what Paul is talking about in this passage when he says he made us alive together with Christ. And that's what Paul was talking about in the scripture reading that Sarah read. It is a reality that baptism is meant to communicate I could never forget it because I was baptized at the age of eight and my pastor told me, told us, the class, baptism is about our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And if you, I, I'm, that is the one question I want you to be able to answer in the interview. And if you miss that, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to baptize you, but as I put you down, I'm going to ask you while you're under the water... <laughs> What is the symbol? What, what does baptism symbolize? And I won't let you up until I hear the answer. <laughs> um, for an eight-year-old, that's reason to remember. <laughs> but I hope that we have better reasons for remembering. See, we rejected God, but He responded to our foolishness by binding us to Christ through faith enabled by the Spirit so that in His death we died with Him to sin. In His resurrection, we are made alive together with Him. And Paul is pointing out that our union with Christ doesn't even end with our union in His death and resurrection Paul tells us that because we are united with Christ, we are seated with Him in the heavenly places. Look at verse 6. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When you think of that in light of chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We share in that exaltation. We share in the resurrection life of our Savior. We share in His victory over the powers. We are no longer under the tyranny of sin and Satan. Where once we were slaves of sin, slaves of Satan, according to verse 1 and verse 2, we are now under the righteous, beneficent rule of our Savior and King who loved us and gave Himself for us. No wonder Paul would interject, by grace you have been saved 
It is a kindness that extends beyond our wildest dreams. And Paul highlights our past because it is so easy to take the kindness of God for granted. I've been in church all my life, and I know we tend to forget where we're coming from. Remembering our past ought to humble us. And in being humbled by the lavishness of the grace of God, motivate us to give ourselves to a life of continuing repentance and running to Jesus Christ. See, Kintsugi is a slow, painstaking process. Just as God's remaking of you and me is a lifelong process. We have been saved from the guilt and condemnation of sin, but sin is all too present in us. Sarah gave us a glimpse of our continuing sinfulness as she prayed and asked God to forgive us for our misplaced focus. We are still being reshaped in the image of Jesus. And our remembering of our past should also shape the way we look at the people around us who do not follow Jesus. Paul in Titus actually reminds the believers of their past so that they can be better witnesses in the present. See, as recipients of the grace of God, we need to show the same compassion that we ourselves have received from God, don't we? People around us need our kind speech and loving gospel proclamation, not the self-righteous patronizing or posturing that we are often tempted to do. But for the grace of God, we all would be in the same circumstances. Remembering our past should make us winsome witnesses. Holding out the bread of life as a beggar who's found bread. At the same time, we shouldn't be afraid of people either. They may seem to be more put together. They may seem to have their lives in shape. But Paul tells us that outside of Jesus Christ, these people are still living under the tyranny of sin, of Satan, and the world. They are under God's wrath. They need the Lord. And if we love these people, maybe our siblings, kids, co-workers, friends, then we would want them to know this wonderful God who has graced us with himself. Knowing our past should motivate us to give people the gospel out of grateful delight in God because we want them to share our delight in this glorious God. Now, someone might object, RJ, that's all well and good. I agree. 
But frankly, my circumstances right now make it very difficult for me to rejoice or even believe that God is good. I recognize beyond the pain of loss, some of you might be going through physical illness. Some of you might be struggling with your mental health. Some of you may be smiling outwardly but bearing some secret pain that you cannot bear to let anybody know. First of all, let me say, you are not alone. God has put you in a community such as this, this community of faith, so that you may be loved. Second, this text is still for you to give you hope in the midst of your circumstances. How do I know? Well, Paul wrote these words in a Roman prison, not a country club. And the very person who writes this struggled with his own thorn in the flesh. And even though he pleaded with God three times, and and this is not three times the way we do three times. This is Paul pleading with God earnestly. God did not fix Paul's problem, did he? Instead, he taught Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And before you think that God is insensitive to Paul, please understand that this is Jesus responding to Paul. The same Jesus who lamented on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the words of Tim Keller, it was Jesus who truly experienced the ultimate darkness, the cosmic rejection we deserved so that we can know the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. Friend, the same Jesus invites you to draw near to his throne of grace that you may find mercy and grace to help in this, your time of need. He understands your plight more fully than you do. And in his wise providence, he may not fix your problem as you'd like, but know that he gives himself. Because more than anything else, he is the one we really need. That's why I'm I'm glad that we sang, All I Have is Christ. And the great thing about having Christ and being owned by Christ is that he is taking the fractured fragments of our lives And he is making us whole by driving us deeper into himself. And he means for this process to take place in community as we walk together and point one another to our Savior. This struggle 
reminds us that we live in the already and not yet. Paul is emphasizing the already. The things that we already enjoy in Jesus Christ. So that he may give us hope in the not yet in which we live right now. We live by faith and not by sight. But we know by faith, because his word tells us so, that God is at work in our lives. So that, look at verse 7, here's the hope that you and I can grab hold of. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Your suffering does not define you. God does. And Paul is telling us that you and I are God's trophies of grace. God, if you will, is the master kintsugi craftsman, creating beauty out of the broken fragments of our lives as he remakes us into the image of Jesus. Because this text tells us that his intention is to show us off for all eternity as the objects of his matchless love. So that he can show the universe. All of us. You see this person. You know all the struggles that he faced. You know all. You know where he's coming from. You see the cracks. And you see how he now is. How I have remade him, reshaped him to look like Jesus while still remaining a unique individual, giving glory to Christ. See, that's what God intends to do. And we don't understand what God is doing in our lives. But the fact that Jesus gave himself for you and me assures us that he is working for our good a good that we will ultimately appreciate when we see him. Even if the present time is filled with pain and misery. Friends, Christianity is realistic. We're not people who deny pain. We're not people who deny suffering. We're not called to put up a front. We are called to acknowledge the reality of our pain and to bring them to our Savior. And we, the people of God, are called to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep. And our hope in our weeping, is that for all eternity, we will experience the lavish riches of his kindness in Christ. That is the plan of God for you and me. He's not content with simply showering us with his grace now. The grace we enjoy right now is just a foretaste of the future kindness. We are his inheritance, and he's looking forward 
to doting on us for all eternity so that we might be to the praise of his glory. Look, we don't deserve this kindness, do we? Neither can we ever earn such favor. In fact, if you're trying, stop it. Paul is emphatic. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. They're all too familiar words, but I hope that you and I would share Paul's wonder and amazement that rebellious zombies like you and me under God's wrath have been made alive to be adopted children through faith, joint heirs with Jesus. Not because of anything in us or anything we've done, but through faith. And I love this description of John Calvin of faith. Faith is like an empty open hand stretched out towards God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. That's how God treats us. It's an old hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's our reality. God's gift of salvation. It's not just faith that is the gift. It is this whole complex of salvation humbles us and leaves us grateful. And that gratitude to God for His grace motivates us to give our all for God. We're not not trying to accumulate points. We are obeying out of delight in Him. It's our way of showing our gratitude, of saying to God, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for you. And that's why Paul goes on, verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Imagine that. We who were hopeless Humpty Dumpties are now God's new creations in Christ. We've been brought into the new covenant. We are in covenant relationship with God. We have new hearts indwelt by the Spirit of God. And He is now, even now, And in every circumstance of life, at work in our lives. It is amazing to think we are God's workmanship. The same God who created the universe. Who created the stars. Who created the rose with its fragrance, with its beauty. is at work in you and in me. 
And we are going to look better than the most beautiful rose. Because we will display the winsome character of Jesus. From walking in sin, we now walk in the good that God has prepared for us to do. That's what redemption is about. God has saved us to serve his purposes. And it's not that we are being used or manipulated. We're actually enjoying the freedom of what it means to be fully human the more we follow the purposes of God. Because our walking in sin, our being pigs in the mud of our depravity, left us broken, frustrated, unfulfilled, unhappy, didn't it? God, in His goodness, brings us back to what He intends for us because He loves us and He wants what's best for us. That's why He created us for good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That gives purpose to you and me, doesn't it? Purpose for our lives. That what I'm doing as I obey God isn't some random act in this unforgiving, uncaring universe. Impersonal to the nth degree. No. We live in a universe run by a personal God. That this triune God who in the joy of their fellowship with one another created you and me so that we can join in that fellowship. And despite our foolishness in running away from him has pursued us and brought us back by his costly grace so that now we can enjoy him. And in the future, when, he retur- when Christ returns, enjoy to the fullest the wonder, the glory of that communion of Father, Son, and Spirit. We're not just to do good works as a private matter. Remember that when the gospel went out in Asia, in Ephesus, its public consequences pose the threat to the idol makers of the day. By the same token, friends, God has gifted us with the privilege of being the means by which he demonstrates his presence in the world. So as we rejoice in the grace of God that he has lavished on us, I hope you realize that it's not meant to stop with us. So as you go about your work this week and for the rest of the month, as you drive around town, as you engage with people, please ask these questions prayerfully. What areas of brokenness is God bringing to light around me? How does the gospel bring health and healing into that broken situation. And then ask, going beyond the theoretical to the practical, 
How does God want me and the church to respond? See, God is recreating us so that we may participate in his redemptive work. And our life together is the canvas on which God foreshadows the loveliness of his new creation. My prayer is that in the coming days, we would be faithful to perform the good work that God has prepared for us from eternity so that we, as individuals and as Crestwick Baptist Church, may live together to the praise of His glorious grace. Let us pray. Father, thank you. We thank you that you haven't just rescued us, you haven't just given us a retirement plan that stretches for all eternity. You haven't just given us fire insurance. Father, we thank you that you have given us yourself, that you have bound us to yourself and that we enjoy, even now, the security and confidence of being loved, of being bound to the King of kings and Lord of lords. You have said that we are to abide in you by obeying you. So, Father, we pray as your people, Help us first to recognize this wonderful privilege. Help us to rejoice in you so that we may cling to you, so that we may cling to Christ. And out of this delight of relationship, help us to serve others. Help us to look beyond our daily struggles to recognize that you are working through these struggles so that frail and flawed and weak though we may be, we may be your instruments to bless others, to be the means by which others experience your grace as we rely on you for the strength and ability to serve in the midst of our weakness. Father, thank you. Thank you for this hope. Thank you for this privilege. We pray that you'd enable us to live out this hope from day to day. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake.